I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, brought to you by Virago Press the international publisher of books by women. Welcome uh, to this live recording of the Virago podcast. Um, It's a monthly celebration of reading, writing and our brilliant authors. Um, You can find the podcast on Acast and iTunes or via the Virago website, which is virago.co.uk. So welcome. My name is Hayley Camis. Um, I'm the publicity manager at Virago Press, and I'm thrilled to be here today with one of the brilliant contributors to our new anthology, Can We All Be Feminists?, which is a collection of essays edited by feminist activist and writer June Eric Udori. And it brings together 17 writers from diverse backgrounds who each explore intersectionality, identity, and finding the right way forward for feminism. It's been described as bustle as the intersectional feminist anthology we all need to read. Stylist magazine called it a must-read, and it was chosen as a top pick in The Guardian's autumn books this year. Um, Copies are available to buy after this talk, and I'm sure Sophia will be um, willing to sign them for you as well. Um, I'm sad to say, unfortunately, Selena Thompson couldn't be with us today, um, but we both are massive admirers of hers and her essay, so we'll be discussing all the themes that are in her essay, Fat Demands, um, today. So um, without further ado, I'm joined by the brilliant Sophia Andre, who is a visual artist and designer. Uh, Sophia's art practice and writings aim to articulate a commentary on gender non-conformity, bodies and race as part of the South Asian diaspora. Um, so welcome, Sophia, and thank, thank you for you. being here today. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Um, I wondered if you could first of all tell us a little about a bit about your art because you've got an exciting um, installation coming oh, up. Yeah. So um, I wouldn't say I was a writer, but I do writing. But primarily, I'm an artist, a visual artist. So a lot of them might be making zines, um, exhibitions, illustration, you name it. Um, Heli and I were talking just outside about an exhibition I've got coming up where I've shared my 2018 search history in like an illustrated exhibition and my private and public messages, my private and public Instagram accounts exploring how we 
I guess, occupy digital spaces, both in public and in private. So, yeah, would you share your search history publicly? <laughs> and what does it say about you as well? Like, a lot of my search history tends to be stuff like, am I going to die because I've got too much phlegm coming out of my nose this weekend or <laughs> whatever. Um, a lot of it, I think, is just my deep anxieties that I don't... I wouldn't necessarily ask my friends, oh, yeah, I've got a little spot on my foot. Is that cancer? But that's what I'm Googling all of the time, alongside, like, work things and, I don't know, normal stuff. But I think it's, um, I think it's really interesting to see that visually in a space. Uh, a lot of my work, I guess, explores this kind of radical openness and oversharing in a way. Mm. So, yeah, I think go home, look at your search history and see what you kind of... See what it says about you, I guess. And that's what we're doing in the installation. Exactly. And what's it called? Um, it's called Sufi in Private. Yeah. Um, if you're down London, uh, it's on till December at the Freebird Centre. So you're welcome. Great. Um, so not only are you an incredibly talented visual artist, um, but your essay is really powerful in here, and it, and it grapples with the question we'll be talking about today, uh, which is the title of the anthology, Can, Can We All Be Feminists? Um, so I thought it would be nice if you could um, read an essay, uh, read your essay, a little extract yeah. from Deviant Bodies. Okay. So uh, my essay is called Deviant Bodies, and a lot of it, um, I'm just going to read a little like, extract, just to kind of set the tone of what I mean by Deviant Bodies. It uses the metaphor of a state, so beauty is a state that we exist in, like a country. Um, and the section is called Policed Bodies. It's worth noting that my deviations my hairiness in particular, are tied intrinsically to my South Asian heritage. They are read as ugly and deviant, in part because they subvert Western Eurocentric beauty standards. Subversion is a threat to the state. It dares to imply that there is another way to exist. This subversion must be fixed. It needs to be policed. Beauty is policed by your friends, parents, acquaintances, partners, your communities, no matter how radical by strangers on the street, by even you, yourself. It's easy to paint these enforcers as every white, hetero, cis, capitalist man in the world. This is reductive. As a person of colour, I can internalise racism, and I use this to police myself and others, despite good intentions and knowing better. I also find this policing in feminist spaces, slut-shaming, trans-exclusionary feminism, sex worker-exclusionary feminism, white feminism... All of these areas take ideas and thoughts and use them to police women and bodies they deem to be deviating. It comes back to the common wisdom that patriarchy is so lazy that it gets women and other mar marginalised genders to do its work for it. The state is not maintained by the establishment of aesthetic alone. It is maintained by you, by me, by bodies I love, I hate, I know bodies I know and bodies I don't. Policing beauty happens in private and public. Private policing is when your mother puts facial bleach on your moustache when you're 11, even though you're crying because it burns and itches. It's when your grandma points to your face with nothing but care in her voice and love in her intentions and says, this looks dirty, Biddy. It's when your two close friends, both white, skinny and smooth, laugh about your sideburns in secondary school and you pretend not to notice because, what can you say? These words from the ones you love leave your body filled with shame and your heart filled with hurt. These words are reminders that your deviation is everyone's responsibility, just as much as it is yours, to correct. Public policing of beauty isn't always obvious, but it is constant. 
Its threat haunts every plan, every outfit, every decision you make before stepping out in public. It's when strangers openly stare at you. It's when people on the train try to take photos of you. It's when groups of men snigger and point and call and shout, dirty, hairy, packy. It's when people say, always loud enough for you to hear, is that a man or a woman? This public dialogue on your, on your deviant body is a reminder that you do not belong in beauty. My deviations strip me of my humanity and are read as a consent to make my, my body a public discourse. Public and private policing of bodies is a reaffirmation that everyone is allowed an opinion on a deviant body, except, of course, the body itself. This is because a deviant body showing autonomy is one of the most frightening things of all. Refusing to assimilate frightens the state. And when the state is scared, it is often at its most abusive and dangerous. When the state feels a loss of power, it will retaliate to recover lost ground. When the state sees a body that cannot be tamed, a deviant, it fears that which it cannot understand or control. What if other bodies start to empathize? What if this spreads to other bodies? What if they see through the laws? What if they rise up? This disruption must be stopped before it starts. The state has everything to lose. The deviant body has everything to gain. Thank you. That's so powerful. That's one of my favourite parts of your yeah, essay. So we're going to talk a lot about that <coughs> um, particular extract today. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to talk about intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. But I wondered, was it, which I know you found through your deviant body. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about that moment and the, the body um, hair movement in a yeah. bit. But when was it you first found feminism or what we're going to talk about today called mainstream feminism mm. how old were you do you, do you remember a moment where when it happened um i don't know i don't think there's ever like one moment where you like find feminism i think you're finding it again and again and again um i remember i don't know if this is the first time but i do remember once I was at university and it was one of the first lectures i had it was like contextual studies and one of the like lecturers asked okay so put your hand up if you're left wing Put your hand up if you're right wing. I can't remember if anyone did. I hope no one did. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was like, put your hand up if you're a feminist. And I felt my hand go up, and I had no idea what I just signed up for. But I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, I am. It could have been something terrible for all I knew. Um, but I felt like, okay, yeah, I am. But that fact, the fact that I was 18 years old, and I didn't know what feminism was, but I felt like I was signing up to it, I think maybe, mm. yeah, I don't know. I think maybe that was saying something then that... I haven't really fully unpacked, but yeah, why well, didn't I know what feminism, feminism was at that age? Um, why, did I, why did my gut say I had to put my hand up? Why did I put my hand up without knowing what it was? Mm. I don't know. There was a lot of things, I think, there maybe is one of the first times in my head. And um, June, the editor of the collection, mm. um, talks really nicely in her introduction about um, how she first found feminism, and it was through reading Mary Wollstonecraft, A Vindication of the Rights mm. of Women, um, reading Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth, and um, in, in these texts, reading them and thinking, yeah, this is, they're writing what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, and then there's a shift um, when, you, when June says, she's engaging in these conversations on Twitter, she's reading all these um, seminal feminist texts, but then a part of her, when she's engaging them, she feels like she has to leave a part of her outside of the door. Um, and you had that same yeah. alienating experience, didn't you, with the body positive movement? Um, so could you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that? I think, I think everyone probably has at some point where they felt like, I'm resonating with this so much, but not wholly, and why not? Um, so I guess when I was a student, um, 
I was involved in this campaign called Armpits for August, and it's just as bad and just as amazing as it sounds. It's basically women and non-binary people raised money for this charity called Verity, which supports people with PCOS. PCOS is polycystic ovary syndrome, and it was really exciting because for once I was surrounded by people I could relate to, to an extent, and they're all growing out their body hair, and it was really exciting, and I felt like this is the first time I've ever been in a space where it's not disgusting. I mean, it is disgusting, but in a cool way now. And I don't know, it was great, but also something was missing. They were all, like, really fair-haired white women, and they were growing out, like, tiny little wisps of body hair, and I was just sat there like, oh, okay, is, is this it? Like, I don't know, there was a big disparity between the way my body hair is and the way they, they were, they were mm. able to carry it, and I think society can accept deviance to an extent, but if it deviates too much, no, that's mm. got to be shut down. Um, and so they could navigate this body hair campaign and it could be fun and cool and a nice way to raise money, but it wasn't the life they were living. It wasn't the fact that they dealt with the day-to-day -day realities of being someone who is visibly hairy, visibly gender non-conforming in, in life. Like, that's, that's where I didn't... Mm -hmm. I felt uncomfortable, but I didn't know why at the time and I couldn't articulate it. And I think now I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it was this. This was one of the things of why it just didn't hit home wholly. Yeah. And um, Selena talks about that as well in um, her essay, Fat Demands, about mm -hmm. when she discovers that there's a, this need for intersectional feminism. I thought, maybe I'll read this, um, mm. as she's not here, because it's, really, it's really good. So this is from the beginning of her essay, Fat Demands. Um, I remember distinctly the moment when the need for intersectional feminism occurred to me. I was 21, in my room at university, reading Susie Orbach's seminal feminist text, Fat is a Feminist Issue. In it, she instructs women who are trying to give up dieting to load up your house with bad foods so that anything they could possibly crave is there, and as such, they will not need to binge eat. I was perplexed. What kind of world was this woman living in where I could afford to have a kitchen full of any food I might desire? And how, as a single woman, could I justify the kind of guaranteed food waste that would accompany such an act? I didn't have the language for it then, but it was the first time I realised that a feminist writer had been so busy thinking of all the women as simply women that she had not seen all of my womanhood. She had not seen that my womanhood was broke and single. And she had definitely not seen that my womanhood might not want to lose weight. So I think that's another really important moment mm. for everyone, that, that you think that these voices aren't including me. Um, and for people in the room who might not know what intersectional feminism is, we're going to be using this term a lot today, and it's, and it's really what this book um, is about. Um, June notes in her introduction, it was first coined in 1989 by feminist legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us what your definition, your personal def definition of intersectional feminism is, or what this mm. pure feminism would look like in an ideal world. So... Um, I don't know if you've read anything by Roxane Gay, but if you haven't, I wholly, wholly recommend it. Um, but there's something that she writes about feminism existing in pluralities, that there's no, there's no single feminism. So when someone's describing feminism as one, be-all and end-all monolith, I find that quite like, that's not, that works for you, but it doesn't work for me. And I think for me, feminism is one that exists in multitudes. Mm -hmm. So feminism that is intersectional exists in the multitudes because there is no one being, there is no one person and so you need a feminism that can suit your needs, the next person's needs, and so on. Like, the, 
the things I need, my struggle, is, isn't the same as the struggle next to me, or your struggle, or so on and so on. And I think it's about, it's about finding a feminism that kind of allows room for multiple struggles and allows multiple people to exist and thrive and nurtured. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, multiple struggles, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of saying it. And um, that essay, you're talking about feminism plural, um, mm. you use a really good quote from it, from Roxane Gay's essay, um, which says, historically, feminism has been far more invested in improving the lives of heterosexual white women to the detriment of all others. Um, and for us sitting here today, it, it seems like it's not possible that a feminist movement that doesn't take in other identities like race, religion, or socioeconomic class, mm-hmm. can that even be considered feminism? My gut says no. Yeah. Um, you can't just liberate one type of woman and call it a day. Mm-hmm. I think that's just... I guess it's like the glass ceiling, just reinforcing it again and again just because you've gotten through. Um, I think it's about... Imagine, like, a hierarchy of triangles, right? You've got to unpack all of it, and you've got to start from the ground up and then work your way to the top. You've got to dismantle the state um, of oppression, of whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't just take one brick away and think that your work is done because you've still got a whole queue behind you that still need to get through. And I think, yeah, I don't think feminism can only be for one, mm-hmm. one type of person. But still, we see all the time this lack of representation in celebrated Mm. cultural feminist moments um i'm thinking of beyonce's lemonade selena talks about that Mm -hmm. there's a a lack of um body diversity throughout Mm. that even though that was praised as being like an amazing cultural moment for um for feminism um and people people are tired of that aren't they And, and you talk really brilliantly about weight ways in which you're tired with the performance aspect mm. of mainstream feminism. Um, yeah, yeah, and you, you with the Theresa May example. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think somehow mainstream feminism is quite performative. So how much is it actual, like, f- boots on the ground, doing, doing the hard work of making sure that everyone is safe, everyone is equal, um, compared to Theresa May that happens to wear a T-shirt that says, this is what a feminist looks like, and that's the job done? No, or like Topshop have, I don't know, feminist t-shirts or like Equality Now or something and you can buy it and it's great, but what are you actually doing though? How are you actually helping anyone just by wearing a t-shirt? Yeah, t-shirt feminism, I don't know. I think it's quite, again, reductive and performative. Um, Feminism that is informative is, I guess, direct action. Like there's some amazing groups that are actively campaigning, actively making the lives of women better. Like, um, do you know Sisters Uncut? If you don't, definitely Google it. Um, they're an amazing, amazing grassroots activist group. Um, and they're campaigning against um, the government's domestic housing, kind of, sorry, domestic violence cuts to domestic violence services. And they are out there, like, on the street, boots on the ground, campaigning and protesting and taking action. Um, and that's not performative. And that's where real women who are affected by this are leading them and allies are backing them on like i think that's really powerful mm. that compared to theresa may who like pretty much forefronted yarswood wearing a t-shirt saying this is what feminist looks like the, the complete disparity and detachment from actual feminism i think that's when you feel it mm-hmm. it just being kind of like just no self-awareness almost. definitely and um selena talks really brilliantly about um 
in the issue of fat and feminism, things yeah. like, oh, it's great that there are loads of online clothing out outlets that cater to plus-size mm. women, but not everyone has access to a computer and can mm. buy online-only things. And there's nothing radical, she says, about yeah. a plus-size dress that's been made by a sweatshop yeah. um, and things like that. So I think what people need to do is think, oh, great, I'm going to buy this T-shirt, but what is it? what am I actually doing? Like, yeah. is it because it's trendy, is it because it's this zeitgeisty thing at the moment, which is just not great. Yeah, no, I totally yeah. agree. And um, so let's talk, go back to your extract that you read about policing bodies. <coughs> um, so you talk about the public and the private, yeah. which is really fascinating. And um, like with your mother, like it's, it's yeah. so hard to read, but I know I'm sure lots of people in the room have mm. had... had parts of them policed in in private about their bodies um and selena says in hers it it is one of the greatest thefts that patriarchy enacts on our bodies on all our bodies to tell them that they don't belong to us um is that something you feel like you've experienced as well Mm -hmm. um i think how much of you do you own how much of your body do you own how much can you actually be who you are and i mean wholly if you if there were no repercussions out on the street who would you be? What would you do? Um, I think about that a lot. I think about all the things I could be if my body was my own. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I wouldn't be sat here. I would be like taking a walk out in the rain and listening to podcasts in the middle of the night and looking at the stars or something really beautiful. I, wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be saying any of this. Mm-hmm. But there's no choice because our bodies aren't our homes yet. Our t- aren't our homes. <laughs> Isn't our homes? I don't know yeah. what the, how Ooh, to word that one. <laughs> but you can figure it out. Um, I, so last year, I normally wear a headscarf, I'm a Muslim, and last year I was reported by someone on on my daily commute to work um, as suspicious, because a hairy person that could be read as a woman, can't be read as a man, what what is happening, wearing a headscarf and a backpack that I carry all the time to work my laptop in is suspicious. Um, And I can't wear my headscarf anymore, I don't feel safe going out there, I that breaks my heart, that I can't do with my body what I want to do because mm-hmm. it's not my own, not my own yet. And I want to be able to live in a world where I can wear what I want and I can dress how I want and I can just, I can take ownership of this kind of entire body that I have and I want others to be able to do the same. I want you all to be able to exist in your glory of your body and be able to go out and do whatever you want and walk safely at night and all of these things. I think it only comes back to safety and owning yeah. who you are and, yeah. I think so. Um, I don't know if anyone saw that tweet that went viral mm-hmm. um, recently, which um, said, if, um, if men had a 9pm curfew, <laughs> what, what would you, as a woman, what would yeah, you do? what would you do? Um, and there was some really, really yeah. funny answers, but uh, one of my favourites was, I would run, like with all the clapping emojis, like, <laughs> I would run at the streets at night. And yeah. I was thinking, I mean, I hate running, but I was thinking, oh my... <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but I you could. Would, yeah, but you <laughs> would, wouldn't you? Because yeah, you'd, be, yeah. you'd, be, you'd feel safe. You'd probably have this whole community of other women being like, yes, go girl, yeah, like you it's run. At, it's at 9pm time. Yeah, and this. you know, it'll be dark and yeah. it'll be really nice. You'd feel, yeah. Um, but there were some really interesting answers to that. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, not you only just that? your body, but mm. like, how much of the world do you own right now? How much of the world do you feel safe existing in? Um, I don't really feel safe traveling places. I don't mm. really feel safe being alone in places sometimes. Um, and yeah, I think that's interesting. It's not only your physical body, but it's how much you exist within this country, mm-hmm. um, within this space. And I think when I say country, I think metaphorically rather than like England or whatever. Um, mm. 
Yeah. Um, there's a really nice quote in your essay where um, you talk about beauty. So um, mm. you define beauty in your essay as, would you say, Western Eurocentric standards yeah. of beauty. And um, correct me yeah, if I'm saying it wrong, but it's something like, Beauty is a, a fascist country, a state. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah. yeah I think I, I think it? I know it. Okay, um, you say it because. So, I imagine beauty as being a country, right? Um, its borders are fascist. Its laws are oppressive. Um, I can only really be a tourist in beauty. I can visit, but everyone in that country knows I'm not a citizen and knows I don't belong. And I can only visit for a certain amount of time, and maybe I can then go home again. But I don't exist in that country, and I don't belong in that country, and everyone knows it. And also, people that do belong in that country and have citizenship, it's very precarious. It's a very risky ground to live because you're always kind of under the threat of being thrown out because you're not beautiful enough, you're not safe enough, you're not law-abiding within this country of beauty. Because beauty has a lot of laws that you've got to follow to the, to, to the dot almost. Otherwise, you're not allowed in. And I think it's kind of... Do I, do I want to live in beauty? Probably not. Um, but can I? No. And it's just that kind of idea of thinking about this almost as a country and as a space that you're allowed to exist in, and are you allowed to exist in that space? I don't know. And you talk about a lot about, you know, being, your body being versus the state. Yeah. Um, at war, it's sort of, mm. because I guess what you can explain what you're saying better. Like, how, what yeah. do you mean by that? And what, what is the solution, really? Um, so I guess, again, it comes out to that metaphor beauty being a country, beauty being a state. Um, it's violent. It's really violent because you're policed constantly at home, outside, all of the time. And when we're talking about these metaphors and this kind of idea, almost like war, because you are yeah. at war. You're not, you're not law-abiding. If you're not law-abiding, you're a criminal, you're a deviant, and that's got to be fixed, right? And I think, I don't know, down with the state, I guess. Yeah, down <laughs> like, with it. And maybe it comes back to, if you liberate the deviant body, you liberate all of us. Because if you liberate the person here, by default, that whole system is going to crash because it's got no foundation to exist on anymore. Mm -hmm. So start from the bottom up and work your way. By default, all the people at the top. It's almost like, I guess, when I'm talking about patriarchy, patriarchy affects men too. So, but it's not about fighting for men's equality. It's about fighting for women's equality. And then by default, men are liberated too. It's like, fight for the deviant body and we're all going to be liberated. And I think it's almost like, um, yeah... I guess that's it. Um, let's talk again about safety. Mm. Um, a big takeaway for me in your essay um, is, how, is about safety for gender non-conforming bodies yeah. um, and how it would be amazing if they could just exist in public without mm. the threat of violence. Um, and you talk a lot about how um, fem mainstream feminism and society were, are obsessed with looking after these beautiful and, and good bodies um, mm. and the threat of sexual violence, uh, but no one's really talking about how um, over a third of trans people have experienced a hate crime in the past uh, 12 months. So why, why and, is, and how is mainstream feminism not addressing this and um, what, what can people do? Um, I think it comes back to safety just on the base level of safety. We all need to be safe. Um, and I think we're talking about beautiful bodies, safe bodies, good bodies, and deviant bodies. Um, safe bodies are bodies that are safe enough. Um, they're not necessarily beautiful and they're not necessarily good, but they're safe. They'll get by in this state. Um, good bodies are bodies that are, yeah, they're good. They're not beautiful, but they're good. 
Um, and they allowed some deviance within its kind of laws, but they're good. Um, and beautiful bodies are ones that tick all of those boxes. And they're often the ones that probably receive a lot of violence as a result. And it's not to, it's not to erase that violence, but it's almost saying our struggles go hand in hand. Um, the fact that, yeah, that statistic of trans people is frightening. Mm. Um, and it's almost standing shoulder to shoulder with your siblings and all fighting for the same thing. We're all fighting for safety. We all want to be safe. We all want to exist in this world. And I think, yeah, maybe it comes back to mm -hmm. ground up, fighting for safety, keeping everyone safe. And then we can deal with all those little details later. But let's just start off by making sure everyone's safe, mm. everyone's kind of comfortable, and everyone can exist. I think, yeah, that's what we want right now. That's what I want. Definitely. And then, and then we'll figure out the rest later. Um, another brilliant essay in the collection is by um, Guardian writer Francis Ryan, um, and it's called No Disabled Access, and it's, it's about how um, mainstream feminism um, just isn't helping with all the mm. concerns that um, disabled people with disabilities and yeah. women with disabilities have um, in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and I think this quote from yours really, really sums it up. Um, our bodies exist in multitudes, and our feminism should too. And yeah. that, that should really be the takeaway from this talk and, and things like that. Like, don't just think about your body. Think about the people that aren't in the room mm. um, and how they have access to this and how safe they're yeah. feeling. Um, yeah. I think also, like you said, listening. Mm -hmm. um, I think listening is such a superpower. Listening will bring on the revolution one day. I think if you can listen, and that's not... Listening can almost be activism. Activism isn't just on the streets protesting and doing whatever you need to do. It can also be listening. Listening to people next to you, listening to people who have a different experience, listening to people that... I don't know. Yeah, just listening in general, I think, can be really powerful. Mm. Um, and in Selena's essay, I, she says... She thinks feminism needs to be an anti-capitalist um, mm. project. <laughs> um, I think you agree with that as well, I would say. To, yeah, um, I like the idea yeah. of that. So um, <coughs> what would that look like? And what, what does Selena mean from that? Or what, what do you take from that? Because it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I like it. I think... So I guess when we're thinking about it being anti-capitalist... Um, one of the examples that comes to my head is the fight for equal pay. So I don't know the sticks off the top of my head, but they're, they're in there somewhere. Mm. Um, about how the fight for equal pay is often um, quoted as the amount of equal pay for white women compared to men. Um, if you were to then take statistics for Pakistani and Bangladeshi women, it is considerably below that. The, the disparity and the gap is far, far more between that of Pakistani and Bangladeshi women and men. It's almost like um, the fight for equal pay only really looks at the disparity between white women and men. Um, I don't know what the split is, but I don't remember the numbers from my head. They're in there. I think, is um, it 26? Is it 26%? I think that's, yeah. Is that I the think, pay gap so, that's yeah. often quoted? Mm. Yeah, so if that's the pay gap, you times that by like two or three or seven, like one of those numbers. Um, <laughs> you'll find it, you can Google yeah, it, trust it. me. Um, but you get the point, though. The fact is the disparity is, is a lot more, and I think that's when it comes to it being mm -hmm. anti-capitalist. Yeah. Um, because all you're fighting for is equal pay in this quite corporate environment. You're not doing anything structural, though. You're just getting someone up here as opposed to completely dismantling this whole system that is hurting all of us. And I think when we go to anti, some, an anti-capitalist feminism, mm -hmm. you're addressing these kind of socionomic, uh, socionomic economic um, kind of issues that aren't being addressed by some types of feminism that are looking at equal pay and like getting more women in the boardroom or getting more women in like you know uh, in parliament which yeah okay we need that but we need more than that though we need a lot more than that 
No, I think that's really good. Um, and I think what we also need to do is that everyone would have heard the phrase, like, check your privilege. Mm. So if you do, if a company does have one woman in the boardroom, yay, there's one woman in the boardroom. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But like, who, who are the people yeah. that still aren't even yeah. in the entry-level jobs? and things like that. So it's just like yeah. checking privilege in, in all aspects um, of our lives and our, our jobs and everything like that. Um, I also wanted to ask you um, about your feminist, um, intersectional feminist role models. Um, mm. Because I know there's... Everyone knows a lot of the seminal feminist texts, and you may have studied them at university. Mm-hmm. Um, you may read them now, but there there are more people for yeah. everyone to discover. There's Instagram accounts, like you said, grassroots yeah. campaigns and things like that. Um, so, who who and what um, should people be reading in the room or following on Twitter and Instagram? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I mentioned Roxane Gay. I think if there's one thing you read, read her book called Hunger. Oh, my gosh, um, yeah. Oh, my God. If I ever wrote anything... I can only dream of writing something even as a fraction of what she wrote for that. It's amazing and so powerful. Um, I think that really opened my eyes up to, to what my feminism could be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Selena talks about yeah, that as well. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, has anyone in the room read Has anyone Hunger? read it? Oh, it's absolutely okay, okay. amazing. You've got a yeah. beautiful journey ahead of you. It's going to be amazing. Mm. It's very sad as well yeah but yeah it's really good at finding those like pockets of trauma that could, yeah yeah really but sorry carry on no 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 that was good <laughs> um i think there's some people on instagram that i really like i find often people like um what's the word like uh ignore social media or kind of like cast it aside as oh, it's, it's so like superficial but i think it's really powerful um i think for me it feels like every day like i'm just finding something new or someone's shared a really interesting caption like it plants a little seed in my head where then I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to think on this later. Um, but I really like Alok Fed Menon. Um, it's in the back of the book. And 
just some of the stuff, like, just in terms of, like, being gender non-conforming and existing in spaces, like, just so articulate, so, so articulate. Um, I really like Aisha Mirza. Um, I think if you go onto her website and stuff, she does writing, but she also, she's also on Instagram and whatever. Um, but she was the first sort of hairy brown woman I saw, and started, I was making work about it as well, and I think... I think it's very hard to exist in a world when you don't see any mirrors for yourself. You don't see yourself in any of these spaces. Um, and I, I think that was one mirror I saw, and that really helped articulate my experience, or just, again, just bookmarking in my head for later. Um, yeah, I thought those two, those two mm. were great. I think, have you got any suggestions, Haley? No, I was, I was just going to say, uh, we were going to work Roxanne Gay, but yeah. um, things I've read recently that were really good, the Rennie Edo Lodge, mm. um, why I'm no longer talking about white people about race. Um, and... Audre Lorde, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, Angela Y. Davis, all, all sorts of people like that that you can read and just expand mm. um, your view on um, intersectional feminism. Um, and there's so many journalism and articles, and obviously this book yeah. is a really good place to start. <laughs> um, also, I wanted to talk about... Um, Riga, so every, we've been talking about deviant bodies, yeah. and I think... What you want people to do is just reclaim their reclaim their bodies as their own. Yeah. Um, and I like this quote um, from Selena's from the end of her essay, um, where she says, "It's sort of a manifesto. Um, your body is your own. Let it be chaos. Let it be anarchy. Let it be animal. Let it be you. Know that this is a radical act, an act of pure feminism. So how mm. how is that radical? Um, just existing, just existing yeah. as." true to yourself like how how is that radical um so i think never in my life whether it's uh school whether it's at uni whether it's in my industry that i'm working or whatever i've never seen anyone like me i don't think i'm ever going to i don't think i'm ever going to see another hairy brown woman um exist in those sorts of spaces and i think i'm just trying to be the person i wish i saw when i was younger i'm just trying to be the person i needed um, to see existing and navigating and smashing it entirely. That's what I need. So I think I'm being the mirrors that I didn't have. And so when it comes back to just existing as radical, I think it's radical. Um, I think almost when you see someone else living their struggle quite visibly, I think it gives you permission to live your struggle as well. Um, and when you see... Yeah, I think when you see someone else's struggle, that mm. is inherently radical, because often we're told to just shut up, get on with it, get, get on with the day, mm. don't worry about this, it's too, you know, you just head down, get on with stuff. And I think, I don't think there's often time or space to take a step back and reflect on how hard you're struggling, on what your journey is and what you're fighting for. And when you just see someone doing it quite visibly, I find that quite powerful and quite moving. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's just making sure that 10-year-old Souf has someone to look up to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And... At the end of your essay and Selena's, sort of the solution is quite simply love. Um, for your loved ones, um, yeah. if they're gender non-conforming, walk them home if they yeah. feel unsafe. Um, and you say a few other examples. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think what we could do. when we think about, I don't know, feminism and what the revolution could be, it's all this big kind of almost impossible thing to touch. But it can be something really small. It can just be like, if you see someone being harassed, you step in. If you check in with the people that you care about how are they doing send someone you love today a text and just say i've got your back if you need anything i'm here it can be something as small as that and that i think can be really powerful it's about empathy and listening and kindness and just loving people and the people around you the people that you love just taking care of them can be really really powerful 
Um, after that thing that happened on the tube, and I just felt so, so vulnerable in so many spaces. And I put a lot of Facebook status up, and I hate kind of gushy Facebook statuses. And the amount of people that reached out and said, so if I can walk you home, um, I, didn't even, I live quite far out of London, they're like, it's fine, I'll get a train with you, it doesn't matter. And just knowing that, knowing that you have an army behind you, an army of people that love you, that can change your entire world in a heartbeat. And I think be that army for the people that you love and curate your own one as well. I think that, that's, yeah, that's when really the revolution important. starts. Mm-hmm. And um, what about some practical advice for anyone in the room who might be wanting the bravery to really be themselves um, and wanting the, to find that courage? Like, Do you yeah. have any advice um, from experience? I, I love yeah. what you just said about being the mirrors that you wish yeah. you had um, when you were younger, but is there, is there any sort of mm. empowering words you can give um, people today? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a high <laughs> bar. Like, I, think, um, I think don't expect it to... You don't wake up one day and you love yourself. That just doesn't happen. But some days you love yourself a little bit more and some days, not today. Today I'm really struggling and that's okay too. But tomorrow might be better or the day after that and so on. It's almost taking each day as it comes. You will never wake up one day and wholly love your body. That just doesn't work. We don't live in a society that will allow you to do that anyway. Um, but there are some days when, which are easier and you will love yourself. You will just see something really nice like, wow, I really like that thing about myself today. Just hold on to that for that day. Tomorrow, we'll figure it out. The day after, we'll figure it out. Um, I think it's almost like don't put that much pressure on yourself to wake up one day and wholly love yourself and be who you are from today onwards. It doesn't happen like that. I think just take it a day at a time and try to be you as much as possible. And if that's not comfortable, just take it back a bit. It's okay. You've got to survive. And I think be really self-compassionate. Be as compassionate as you are to others, to yourself. I think that's a really hard thing to do. And would you say your art and your writing has been a sort of form of therapy yes. for you in this journey? Yes, yeah, so yeah. much. Um, I think my entire life, if I don't understand something or something makes me sad or I just don't get it and I need to figure it out, I'll turn it into a project. Maybe I'll write something, maybe I'll design an exhibition about it because I'm Googling really scary stuff all the time or maybe I'll, like, I feel really sad about my body so I'll write an essay about it or something. I think for me it's a way of processing um, and I think we all process in different ways. Maybe that's your artwork, maybe that's your writing, maybe that's just you going to the garden and gardening for the weekend, and then you come out and you feel a little bit better. I think we all process in different ways, and yeah. for me it's, I don't know, I think my head is an artist. Exactly, and, and like you said, listening and also talking about, mm. about these, um, these themes and um, just us being here today and talking about it at a festival, yeah. it's great. Um, and on that note, I thought it'd be really nice if we could have some like open debates and some questions. Does anyone feel comfortable um, asking questions or um, have anything to say? Everyone's always shy. Yeah, we just need one person to break the silence first, and then yeah. everyone will be at it. Go on. Yes, okay. we have someone over here. I think we, oh, hello, we've the got the mic. mic coming. Yeah. Hang on. Oh, hang on. One, I can't. I can't one hear. Second. I'm really sorry. sorry. A... That's okay. <coughs> Hello. I found Hiya. it very interesting what you said. Um, no, I was just wondering, um, because you said it's a struggle, you know, to just accept yourself. And yeah. Have you ever been tempted to just, you know, maybe remove your hair? or Because it's very courageous what you're doing. You know, it's basically go against what the accepted idea of beauty yeah. is. But you've kind of made a stand. And I said, no, this is what, you know, who yeah. I am. And if you don't like him, but, okay. like me. But yeah. it, it must be hard. Um, so I guess the question is, yeah. have I ever yeah, thought about, ever, thought about yeah, not doing it? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. You know. um, 
yeah, all the time. Every day I wake up and I'm like, do I want this? No. Um, it happens regularly. Like, all the time I, I don't want to be living like this. But at the same time, this is my body. I don't have a choice. I could remove this, but it would always grow back. I could, I could try to lose weight, but my weight fluctuates all the time. I don't have a body that's designed to, to not be like it is. So I could, but at the same time, it's like, um, it's like trying to empty out the ocean. I'm emptying it out, but it still comes crashing onto my shores time and time again. Um, so, yeah, I think about it a lot. Life will be so much easier, but at the same time, I don't know. I feel like I'd... It's a feeling deep inside. I know this is the fight I was given. I've just got to see it through, and it's terrible and painful, but I don't know. It reveals itself to me time and time again. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. You get glimpses of the big picture every now and then, and I, I live for those. And you talk about... Yeah. Um, in, in your essay, like the amount of money spent on hair removal yeah. and things like that, and it's... I, I mean, if anyone's willing to pay for my lifestyle, I'll do whatever the fuck you want, like... <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> or am I? Hi. Yes. Hi. Sorry, um, yeah. Don't you just think it's incredibly sad that you, you see it as this horrible thing that you have facial hair? Because I'm a woman, I have polycystic ovary syndrome, yeah. and I, like, have hair yeah. in really random places. And, yeah, I totally understand that. I've just, like, oh, just want it off. But yeah. I know it'll come back. Mm -hmm. But seeing you on the stage, I think it's actually quite beautiful, that yeah. tash, if that's yeah. what you call Thank it. Thank you. So do you, do you not think it would just be so much nicer if it just wasn't this seen as this horrible thing yeah. and you could just see it so as... So much. I think... Just um, like another part of hair. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I think the language we're using here is a language we've been given by this state, by this society. So often I'm using terms like beauty and ugly. Um, but beyond that... it. Oh my god, it's just it's just my outer shell. Like I'm an egg inside. I want the yolk and whatever. It's just the shell on the outside. Um, and I think almost thinking, I would love to exist in a world where I'm not here talking about my body. I'm here talking about my artwork. I'm here talking about the fact that I'm scared about spiders going in my ears or the fact that I really eat too much, too much chocolate or whatever. I think it's about all those things that make make me me. But the discussion right now is about this outer shell because all of that taints everything else on the inside. It definitely affects it. It's part of that. Um, I don't know, I imagine it like moving parts and they're all intrinsically tied together. If I move one, the whole thing shifts. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there are some days I look and I'm like, I fucking love you so much. And some days, no. But I think it changes. But we're sort of using the language of the world that, that we're in, I guess. I don't know if that answers it. Um, there's a few, I think. Hi. Um, I'm interested in, in, in looking ahead um, yeah. as, a, as a result of something you've just said about looking back. Mm. Uh, there will be other people in the room who can remember Fat as a Feminist issue being a huge door-opening, yeah. amazing, extraordinary piece of work yeah. that changed our worlds, um, I guess, 40 years ago now. Mm -hmm. Can you look ahead to 40 years hence... Yeah. And imagine either what you think the feminism of the feminists mm. of that time might be looking back on today mm. and saying, or oh, if that's a little bit tricky, can you imagine what you would like them to be saying yeah. in, in 40 years' time? What would the feminists oh. of 2050, listening to this oh God, podcast in an archive, yeah, yeah. be thinking, oh, okay, that's very interesting, and... Yeah. Um, I like... I like the idea of thinking about what the future is, this kind of feminist utopia. Um, ideal world, 
feminism doesn't exist because everything is perfect and we've liberated everyone and we don't need to fight that fight anymore. Um, but I think in reality, we're probably still fighting because um, I don't think there can ever really be utopia because when you liberate one person, there's always someone else that needs, that needs help, that needs to be pulled up as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I imagine a really beautiful world where everyone's great, capitalism has fallen, we're all living beautiful lives and everything's paid for. I'm talking full communism, maybe even anarchy <laughs> to an extent, but in like a nice way, in like a nice healthy way. We all do gardening, we're all vegetarian, who, you know, maybe even vegan, who knows? It's utopia. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer off the top of my head, but in my head I hope we're still fighting because I don't think... I don't think everyone can be free. I don't think everyone can be liberated. I think if we think that, if we think everyone's safe, I think that's very dangerous ground to be on. I think, I like to hope we're always still trying. We're always still trying to make sure everyone is safe, everyone is happy, everyone has a good starting foundation. And then from there you can move on. So I like to hope the feminists of the future are still fighting um, for whatever their needs are. I don't know what they might be, but we've got one over here. Hello there. Um, Hi there. Throughout your conversation, you've sort of been concentrating on feminism as an individual mm. priority, like looking at body image. For me, feminism is all about struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I take the fact that society is a structure, yeah. it's made up of groups, and trying to individualise it, for me, it was the feminists, the women who came out in the minor strike where we had the biggest where women had the biggest say. The Dagenham workers who struck in the 1970s, the car workers, came out as a group. This is groups of women coming together. And you haven't really mentioned, you haven't talked about group struggle. You know, yeah. and for me, that is the only way women can really get on through coming together as one, dominant, as one group, campaigning and not seeing feminists as individuals. Would you like to comment on that, please? Yeah. Um, I think the personal is political. Your individual struggle is inherently tied into the struggle of the group. So when we're, I think we're looking at this almost like macro and micro feminism, right? So right now we're focusing on the micro because we're sort of unpacking ideas. But in terms of the, the group struggle, I think this is inherently part of the group struggle. Um, and when we're thinking about kind of body image and whatever, that is an entire group. I think all women are subject to ideas around body image. This is a whole system that we need to deconstruct because it affects all of us. Um, and I think the personal is inherently political because we've got to liberate ourselves both uh, in a domestic setting, but as well as within society in itself. And all of these things are intrinsically linked. Um, and right now we're just focusing on one of these little uh, kind of pinpoints. There's multiple other pinpoints as well, but it's about taking this one out and then this one and this one and this one and this one, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think that about intersectional feminism, um, what, what this movement is doing, it's taking the community of mainstream feminism, which, you know, you could say is only for a privileged group of white women, um, and we're not saying that's bad. We're, we're saying all the, all the texts that have come before this, all the feminists that have come before this, they've contributed to the conversation that we're talking about today. And it, what intersectional feminism is doing is just making that community of women and people just even bigger. So I would say, like you said, yeah. the individual topics we're talking about today is, just ma is making the conversation and the, and the group and the community even bigger than it has been. Was there another question? Yeah, someone here. Hello. Um, when when I when I saw the title of the talk, yeah. um, or I thought I hoped it would be a talk, and so thank you um, as well as questions, um, because I've been trying to make sense um, 
unsuccessfully yeah. of all the discussions and debates about um, transgender. Mm -hmm. When I read that, I started to think, well, as what, what follows or maybe yeah. goes alongside is, is can we all be women? And I found some of the stuff I've been reading about transgender really difficult. Mm. I, can't, I can't kind of settle where yeah. I actually feel happy saying, yes, I agree with that. Because it's a bit like how you've talk, been talking yourself, that you sort of didn't feel quite right. And some of the stuff I find quite upsetting. It's, it, it's, I just wonder if you've got any comments or views about what's happening at the moment and what, what yeah. hope you see. I think Thank this discussion is happening. I think there are probably people that are better placed to say some stuff on it than I am. Um, but my gut is everyone wants to be safe. No one wants to ask for trouble, right? And I think this conversation that, you know, we see online, all the stuff you're reading, people are just... It's getting really, really complicated. But I think let's bear it down right to the, right to the bare facts. Um, I think trans women are women, okay? I think if someone says they're a woman, that's enough for me. Um, Partly because who would choose this struggle, right? Like, it's so hard. And I think on top of that, there's a, that's a lot. There's, a, there's so much struggle tied to being a trans woman that I cannot even begin to imagine. And I think, I think they're your siblings in arms um, because if, if you help them, everything else becomes easier. If you help your siblings and sort of start from the ground up. Um, and also, everyone just wants to be safe, right? I think we should help make everyone safe, regardless of what we're thinking about gender and whatever and da-da-da. Um, let's just start with getting everyone safe, and then we can figure out the details and iron stuff out. But I think if we come from a point of empathy and love and support, life is a lot easier. There is no harm that will ever come from allowing trans people to exist safely, um, because I think they're already experiencing a lot of harm in society as it is. And I think just don't worry too much. A lot of love, a lot of empathy, and just take it from there, I guess. And I understand how it might be complicated and there's lots and lots of stuff in terms of the internet and politics and whatever, but let's bring it back a bit. Let's be really human about it and just be like, okay, you're saying this, you do you, I love you and I will support you and let's just go from there. Any other questions? No? Okay. How are we doing for time? Are we okay? Yeah, we've got yeah. ten. We've got ten minutes. Okay. Is there there's any more questions? Talk about? No, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. um, if there's no more questions, we could always wrap up. Yeah. I don't mind. Let's. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah of course. Of course we have. Go for it. There we go. <laughs> A last minute surge. Hi, yeah. Um, Hi, yeah. I, I appreciate the comment from behind saying, you know, what about 40 years on? You know, I look about, you know, and you're talking about the first point that you saw yourself as a feminist. And I think, no, that was 45 years ago for me. Yeah. yeah and I saw this future that we were fighting for mm. and, and challenges that have... We've, we've managed a lot of things, you know, and I look yeah. around about what huge changes. But there are a lot of things today that I think are far worse, far more difficult to deal with yeah. than I had to deal with as a young feminist. Yeah. And I kind of just wonder about, and I suppose for me, becoming older, mm -hmm. that's another challenge to be yeah, sort yeah. of looking to. So I just would welcome your thoughts. No, definitely. I think there's something really interesting about um, you're almost laying the groundwork for the feminisms to come. Um, and I think that's what we're doing today and tomorrow and so on. We're all laying groundwork for the feminisms that will follow us. And... I think it must be really interesting to kind of see that and thinking, oh my God, are we still here? Are we still fighting the same fights? They're, they're the same, but different at the same time. Um, I, worry, I worry about my sisters a lot. I think them existing in this world where 
I don't know, they're on their computers all the time, they're on dating apps, and it scares me so much. And I worry about what kind of feminism do they need? What kind of fem- and I don't think they care about it either. And I don't know how that makes me feel. Um, Are they a lot younger? Yeah, so 17 and... Twenty, I should know yeah. this. <laughs> like, Let's say the seventeen. The seventeen-year-old is a brat. Like, oh my god, don't get me started. But um, <laughs> I think that could be a talk in itself. Um, but yeah, I think it must be really interesting, kind of see that transition of like feminism that was before to feminism that is now. I think the struggles are different. Um, the fact that there's maybe um, a global feminism as well that's now coming into play with the fact that you can be on Twitter and talking to someone in America who almost has similar struggles but different because of where they are. You can be talking to someone in Pakistan who has a similar but different struggles and so on. And the fact that our feminism needs to be responsive to the, to the world that we're living in right now. Um, and yeah, because I, I don't know. Yeah, you tell me more if you, know, if you, if you want to. I don't know. Do we have the mic? Uh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I think, think I remember things like, and they seem trivial now, but yeah. going in and asking for a pint of beer yeah. and being refused, really silly things like that, but felt like a really challenging yeah, thing yeah. to do. Um, things like keeping your own name. Mm. Um, and to me, that feels really strongly about my identity and me being yeah. me is having my own name and never changing. And seeing people who have lots of different names. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, of course, that's a choice that people make. But there's a really downside, things like pornography, and yeah. I think you talk about dating apps. Social media, when you're talking about how you can access lots of people, mm-hmm. social media will never do it for me. And I yeah. kind of think, am I missing out? Because I just said, oh, too old for this kind of stuff. Take what you need, it's fine. Like, <laughs> if you don't want it, don't want it. But I think that's really interesting what you're saying about um, like going for a pint of beer or keeping a surname. Um, I think it's reflective of the personal versus... like The personal is political. It's those personal things that you're making that are part of the bigger scheme of feminism. Feminism doesn't happen on a grand scale all the time. It happens in small things. Like that day you went for a pint for the first time and how you felt that day. That was a revolution happening in one tiny moment because there are hundreds of you at the same time in different places, in different moments, going for a pint as well. Um, and I think, I think there are similar small struggles as well happening today um, at the same time. I don't know. Yeah. I'll, I'll wait for Mike. Hang on. <coughs> I think there's a very interesting sort of parallel between um, uh, 40 odd years ago and now uh, that's, that's very um, spiky. Um, I can remember that uh, I would be one of the first women that got a mortgage in my own right without having to have a man to actually say he would guarantee the payments. Young women today then have that freedom they just can't afford to actually buy their yeah. own house. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I find that both kind of, uh, it's taken for granted that they can, yeah. but they can't anyway. Maybe so that's where a different the anti-capitalism sort of, feminist kind of yeah, comes in Yeah, a different well. sort of oppression, yeah. really. And that, that's horrible. Yeah. I think what you're saying is totally true, that you might win one fight, but actually we've lost another in terms of access to housing, full stop. And I think that comes back to feminism is that intersectional feminism, it's with multiple struggles at the same time that all tie into that. Um, yeah, so maybe that's the anti-capitalism feminist yeah. kind of, that's a nice metaphor for that, I feel. Any more questions? We could do one more, let's do yeah. this. 
Hi. Hiya. Um, as someone who's also from a South Asian background mm -hmm. and also from a Muslim family, um, I sometimes struggle to reconcile um, my feminist beliefs versus yeah. with what my family tells me to do because yeah, they're yeah. quite conservative, um, you know, very sort of strong Muslims. Yeah. And it can be hard sometimes to tell them about things that I'm passionate about and my yeah, opinions. Yeah. Like my mum... It's weird because my mom is a very independent woman, but she doesn't really believe in feminism yeah. and the feminist, the intersectional feminist ideology. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask how you man, uh, how you are still managing to kind of yeah. reconcile your own um, personal beliefs versus with what you've been told and what you've yeah. been, what you've grown up with. That's a really lovely question. Um, one of my favourite topics as well. I'm going to try to like hone down the answer a bit, but um, I think that can always be hard. I think growing up. Um, no matter what your parents are saying, of course they're right, because they're your parents, and they're almost like these godly figures that know everything, and da-da-da. Um, but I think as you're growing up, you become more critical, and becoming and multiple streams of like ideas and stuff coming in, and then you're like, okay, how do I now reshape everything to fit this? Um, I think, one, the Islam that they're saying, I think often, my I know my parents do, they use Islam as like a parenting tool, they're like, oh no, don't eat that, because that's not, a, that, that's not Islamic. And I'm like, mom, you just don't want to buy me chips today. Like, what, what are we... But um, I think finding spaces, feminist Islamic spaces, they exist and they are amazing. There's um, the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, my God. It changed my life. Like, it's um, run by women. Um, it's not gender segregated. Women lead prayer. There's women imams. It's the, one of the most amazing spaces I've ever been in. Um, and they're, like, like queer-friendly. Every venue they have it has to be, like... Um, have, has to have to say one access or they just don't run the event um, or they find another venue that works. Every event they have, there is always a BSL interpreter, no matter what. Like, hands down, this kind of in active, inclusive approach to Islam um, just completely turned my world upside down because I'm like, okay, so this, this is it. I've, I think for me, my faith has always been something I've found here. I uh, never really understood it, but I knew it was something I wanted to hold on to but didn't really have time to figure out. And then... Inclusive Mosque just landed on my lap, and I was like, oh my God, I get it, I get it now. And it's almost like, um, almost showing, almost re reteaching our parents what our faith can be and what our faith is. It's not um, something to, to use to discipline, to parent us. It's more than that, it's so much bigger. And when you find spaces like this, when you, I don't know, like feminist scholars come and like unpack like verses of the Quran with you and something like that, or they, it just makes so much sense because these ideas aren't at odds. If anything, they are one and the same and they fulfill each other in lots and lots of ways and there's just so much to it. And I find that really, really exciting and empowering. And I don't know, it's like, I find this really exciting thing and I just bring it home and leave it on the table and let them kind of like be like, just look at it. And then maybe mom likes it or she doesn't, we kind of get on. It's almost like um, going out to the board, finding all these really exciting things, bringing them home and just leaving, scattering them on the table and letting my mom deal with the mess. And sometimes she hates it, sometimes she's like, oh, okay. And really indifferent. Very rarely has she ever embraced it, but I think that's just my mom for you. But the fact that maybe her indifference is, is her way of being like, oh, okay, I'll leave you to it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it can be really hard, especially when you love them so much and you don't want to let go of faith, but you don't want to let go of feminism and you don't want to let go of your family. I want my cake and I want to eat it, and I think you can. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Um, Sophia will be signing copies of the book in the room next door, um, which are available to buy. And thanks so much That's for thank coming you. and joining in the discussion. Thanks, Sophia. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and also leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'd also love you to be in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our website, virago.co.uk. Tune in next month for another installment of Books, Feminism, and Conversation from Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.